Welcome to Come Follow Me with Brie, episode 188, Let's Offend the Devil. Hello. I'm so glad you're here. I was MIA last week, mostly because it's the end of the summer and every evening we have things that we're doing and I just never got to it and I have a hard time saying no because I feel like summer is just slipping away and so I, I just never got my act together last week. And because of that, I still have content that I really want to talk about from last week. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to roll with with my content from last week. And maybe I'll end up doing this week's Come Follow Me. I would like to. So, But don't hold me to that because we'll see what happens this week because it's the week before school starts. And I'm both excited and really sad. This is my first year that all of my kids will be all day school. And it's just so weird. And I'm dreaming that I'm going to have so much time now, but I've heard your time gets eaten up no matter what phase you're in. So we'll, we'll see how that is for me, but I'm excited. Okay. The reason why I wanted to make sure I talked about last week is because last week had one of my favorite scriptures and I can't pass by it and not talk about it. And if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you've heard me say it. It's Romans 1 for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And then I love what comes next. He says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. From him, from all of us not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is how the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith to faith. How did you gain your testimony? We all have different stories. For me, mine's a little bit more generic of a story. I have pioneer heritage. I grew up in the church and with parents that believed in the restored gospel. Maybe some of you are converts in your adult life. Maybe some of you grew up in the church but then left for a while and came back. I could go through an infinite different situations or ways that you made it to the restored gospel. But no matter what your story is, your story was, as Paul said, from faith to faith. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Your faith started with somebody else's faith, whether that is a parent, a family member, a friend, or maybe you just picked up the Book of Mormon or the Bible at some point and started reading. The people in the scriptures are real people. And the only reason we have their words is because they were not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and were willing to talk and record their thoughts and feelings and letters like we're reading here. All of our faith came because somebody else had faith, because somebody else had faith and because they were not ashamed to share it. The most loving thing that we can do in our life is to make sure that we wear our faith on our sleeve. That doesn't mean cramming down our testimonies down people's throats at all hours of the day, but it means living the gospel. It means never being willing to say things that you don't believe just for the sake of comfort or social convenience. It means continuing to bear your testimony and teach your children, your teenagers who think church is lame, continuing to teach that to share that even when that's not what they want to do. And yes, ultimately it means bearing your testimony, talking about the gospel, being willing to open your mouth when you are prompted to do so. Now in this chapter, Paul then goes on to talk about the spiritual condition of the people. And it's so interesting to read his description of the people because 
it could just as easily describe our day. I think sometimes we we're so advanced as a civilization. We have so much technology, so much knowledge that these people didn't have that sometimes we, we feel a little above maybe like they might fall into traps that, that we won't fall into because we know so much now we have access to so much. But I think actually the reverse is true. Sometimes we have access to so much that it gets us into more trouble. I'm going to start in verse 20 of Romans chapter one. He says, for the invisible things of him, meaning God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Don't you see that in the world around you? That the invisible acts, works, power of God, those things that that we can't actually physically see God doing, and yet how clearly are those things seen? How clearly do you see God in the world? Continuing, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, I take that to mean us, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Isn't that cool to think that our God is so merciful and so grand and so intertwined in our lives, in the world, in what what's happening around us just in, in nature, let alone talking about the restoration of the gospel and the amazing organization that the church has turned into because of him, let alone talking about our own individual lives and the miracles that we see that are unmistakably from divinity. He is there. He is everywhere and in all things. And yet, isn't it interesting to notice that some see it and some don't? And that's what Paul talks about next. In verse 21, he says, because that when they know God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. You know, sometimes I think people call God science. They're not acknowledging God in the process of science, in the the discoveries of science but they still worship science. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Have you ever done that in your life? Profess yourself to be wise, and because you're so caught up in your own greatness, in your own wisdom, that you become a fool? That's, that's everywhere, all around us. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to a corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. I think in our day, those idols, those gods that we created in the image of man, they are obviously, at least in the part of the world that I live in, less like a golden calf. And I mean, to me... It's more like we're worshiping ourselves, what we want, what we decide is true, which is a pretty unstable way to build a society. So what happens when that happens, when men start worshiping God, but not God? And actually, just as I said that, I had a thought that I'm thinking about the the Roman gods, for instance, and I don't have off the top of my head their their names, but they had gods that were in charge of different areas of nature, like the god of fertility. Instead of seeing the actual really obvious god in that process, they make a fake one 
to represent the process that God is is letting them clearly see. So what happens when that happens? Verse 24, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. What does the term, what does the phrase, God also gave them up? I don't think that that means that God gave up on them, but God honors agency to such a degree that he gives us over to ourselves. And as we're given over to ourselves, we can give ourselves either back to God or we can give ourselves to Satan. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God, so the people, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That describes our world incredibly accurately. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. To me, that is what this self-love movement is. It is self-worship. Now, of course, I certainly believe that we should love ourselves, that we should treat ourselves well and kindly, but it can be taken too far. It can be taken to where we are our own gods, where we put ourselves, our own wisdom, our own truth above God's truth. Verse 26, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. There that is again, gave them up. He honored their agency. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. This is speaking of homosexuality. And likewise, also men leaving the natural use of women burned in their lust toward one another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meet. Okay, and I love this next part. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, isn't that an interesting choice of words? They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It was a choice to turn away from that. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That means unprincipled mind to do those things which are not convenient. And what he says next is just a long list of of descriptions of those who have chosen to leave God. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that which they commit of such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now in that last verse, it says that they which commit such things are worthy of death. I think that's more cultural, and that is actually what some of the punishments for those things were at the time, but obviously not applicable today. But What's interesting to talk about in that verse is not only do the same, so people not only do the same, these sins that he's referring to, but have pleasure in them that do them. And down in the footnote for the word pleasure, it says, approve of them, sympathize with them. Paul is such a great example of, like we said at the beginning, somebody who is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and he's not ashamed to proclaim the truth as it is. And he points out at the very end that it is sinful. It is not good. It is turning your back on God. 
to have pleasure in them that that commit those sins. And it might even especially be a sin that you're committing yourself because then you feel a little justified because other people are doing it too, right? Okay, so now that we have gone through some of the things that Paul says in this first chapter of Romans, I want to switch gears and go to one of my favorite talks. It was given at BYU by James E. Faust in November of 1994. And honestly, just the title itself is one of the reasons that it is my favorite talk. And I've talked about it before in a different episode, but not very thoroughly. The title is Trying to Serve the Lord Without Offending the Devil. If I could put a title on what I have seen happen within the church in the last 10 years, that is the title I would give it, Trying to Serve the Lord Without Offending the Devil. Have you ever thought about the difference between the word nice and the word kind? Niceness is a byproduct of the word kindness. Niceness comes from a desire to not upset anyone to make sure that people are comfortable and that they they don't feel like you have any ill will toward them. Niceness is not wanting to hurt someone's feelings and being willing to sometimes sacrifice the truth in order to make sure you don't hurt that person's feelings. Now, I am all for that sometimes. There are certainly times where that is appropriate and it's not important that you tell the entire whole truth. Because sometimes that would hurt people's feelings and it would serve no purpose. If you look at the definition of the word nice, it is pleasant, agreeable. Nice is a very surface level description of a person, of a behavior. What is kind? If you just look at the definition, it is having or showing a friendly, generous, and considerate nature. Already we've got a little bit more depth to that definition. What does it mean to be generous to people? And what does it mean to be considerate to people? I think it means that you have their actual best interests at heart. It's more than just pleasantries. It's more than just seeking to temporarily make sure that they have good feelings in that moment. It's thinking long-term about that person. You are kind to them because you want the best for them. And what's the best for people? We talked about it at the beginning. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith by not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is never kind to keep people from God. It is never kind to help Satan in deluding them that something that is wrong is right. It is never kind to not help people come closer to Jesus Christ. Because as Paul says here, From faith to faith is how God is revealed. God is what people need. Jesus Christ is what people need. And I don't mean it in a surface way. That is ultimately why they are here. That is the entire purpose of their journey, for them to choose God, for them to choose Jesus Christ. And that is ultimately what it is. It is their choice. But I do not want to get to the end of my life and realize that my lack of courage was a stumbling block for someone. That if I had been more courageous, that if I had worn the gospel on my sleeve, if I had not let niceness defeat kindness, that if I had refused to deny truth by either omission or commission, that perhaps my faith could have been the tipping point for someone else's faith. 
That is the ultimate kindness to make sure that you are helping God in his work and his glory in bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Now, I'm also a firm believer that if you fail in your job, it doesn't mean that everything possible isn't going to be done for every single person. And so it will never be your fault that someone didn't make it back. It will always and forever go back to their choice and God will always make it fair for them that choice. But one of your choices is to choose to be a part of that, to be an instrument in God's hands. And as we are that instrument, we need to always honor people's agency. As we follow the instructions of the Spirit, we love that person. We honor their agency. We allow them to choose. But that does not mean that we have to affirm their choices to tell them what they are doing is right. That might feel nice in the moment, but it is not kind. It's also not something that we need to be telling people constantly. Your number one job is to love people. And that definition, love, has gotten all kinds of mixed up where people think the definition of love is that you have to tell people that they can live their truth and their truth is right, even if it's inconsistent with God. But that is a false definition. You can love that person and disagree with what they are doing. You can love yourself and disagree with what you're doing. God can love you and disagree with what you're doing. Now, Elder Faust, with this title, he was originally quoting Elder Marion G. Romney, who said, Now there are those among us who are trying to serve the Lord without offending the devil. This is a contradiction of terms. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Elder Faust continues, Today, many of us are trying to serve two masters, the Lord and our own selfish interests without offending the devil. Elder Romney continues, The consequences of mortal man's choices are of the all-or-nothing sort. There is no way for him to escape the influence of these opposing powers. Inevitably, he is led by one or the other. His God-given free agency gives him the power and option to choose, but choose he must. Nor can he serve both of them at the same time, for as Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. When we have our feet in both camps, I think that there are lots of different reasons. Reasons that I think of, for one, for me, is sometimes I'm trying to justify my own sin. Maybe I'm committing the same sin. And so when I'm looking at other people, I'm justifying it because I know I do it too. Or maybe I'm not even looking at other people. Maybe I'm just looking at myself and justifying. The second also probably involves some sin on on our own parts, but it's confusing. The world is so confusing. And if we aren't so close to the Holy Ghost, we're not going to know what is up and what is down. We cannot do it on our own. If we're trying to figure out and navigate the morality and all the, all the things that are happening in the world on our own without the Holy Ghost, we will not know what is true and what is false. We cannot afford to be so arrogant to think that because we're we're so wise that we are going to be able to tell the difference. No, we have to be so close to the Holy Ghost. It has been prophesied that this time will be confusing, that the very elect will fall. And I am not an exception and you are not an exception. 
That can happen if we are drifting far away from the Holy Ghost. Elder Faust said, I think we will witness increasing evidence. Remember, this is in 1987. We will witness increasing evidence of Satan's power as the kingdom of God grows stronger. I believe Satan's ever-expanding efforts are some proof of the truthfulness of this work. In the future, the opposition will be both more subtle and more open. Sound familiar? It will be masked in greater sophistication and cunning, but it will also be more blatant. Isn't that interesting? Masked in greater sophistication. So it's being sneakier, but it will also be more blatant. We will need greater spirituality to perceive all the forms of evil and greater strength to resist it. He then goes on to talk about some major issues where we have the opportunity to offend Satan. And he talks about this beautiful story about Mother Teresa at a prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C. He says, She is now aged and physically frail, but courageous with immense spiritual strength. Mother Teresa delivered a message that cut to the very heart and soul of the social ills afflicting America. She says, speaking of abortion, If we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill each other? Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. The reason he's giving this example of Mother Teresa is she is courageously saying things that were not popular. This speech of hers was not widely covered because even at the time, this was not a socially acceptable view. At the time, people said, I don't believe in it, but who am I to say that a woman doesn't have the right to choose? And now it's even more extreme than that. This example of Mother Teresa is her boldly being willing to offend Satan and to offend those who ascribe to the beliefs that Satan is leading them to. The next thing he talks about is population control. And especially at that time, that was a really big buzzword. And there is a socially acceptable phrase that we hear now called sustainable growth. He says, this concept is becoming increasingly popular. How cleverly Satan masked his evil designs with that phrase. There are lots of buzz phrases nowadays. And notice how friendly that's, that sounds. Sustainable growth. Everybody wants sustainable growth, right? There are so many examples of phrases now that are so evil and so counter to God's plan for humanity. But they're, they're disguised with sophistication and credible backing. In regard to this phrase, sustainable growth, Elder Faust said, The Lord said, For the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. That settles the issue for me. It should settle the issue for all of us. The Lord has spoken. There are so many things that that could be applied to. The Lord has spoken on so many topics, and that settles the issue. He next goes into homosexual relations. He says, The church's stand on homosexual relations provides another arena where we offend the devil. I expect that the statement of the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve against homosexual marriages will continue to be assaulted. Any alternatives to the legal and loving marriage between man and a woman are helping unravel the fabric of human society. I am sure that this is pleasing to the devil. Elder Faust then turns to more minor examples, and he first talks about the formula that Satan uses and how these minor things really work into his grander plan. First, he quotes 2 Nephi chapter 28, verses 21 through 22. And others he will pacify, 
and lull them away into carnal security. And they will say, All is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. And behold, others he flattereth away and telleth them that there is no hell. And he saith unto them, I am no devil, for there is none. And thus he whispereth in their ears until he grasps them with his awful chains from whence there is no deliverance. He then quotes C.S. Lewis. He says, C.S. Lewis gave us a keen insight into devilish tactics. In a fictional letter, the master devil, Screwtape, instructs the apprentice devil, Wormwood, who is in training to become a more experienced devil. He says, You will say that these are all very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So what are these small sins? There could be an endless list, and you know which ones are happening to you, especially as you seek with the Spirit to know which ones you are struggling with that Heavenly Father wants you to correct. But Elder Faust here gives a few. He says, Having a temple recommend and not using it seems mild enough. However, if we live close to a temple, perhaps having a temple recommend but not using it may not offend the devil. Satan is offended when we use that recommend, going to the temple to partake of the spiritual protection it affords. As President Brigham Young once said about the building of temples, there are saints who say, I do not like to do it, for we never began to build a temple without the bells of hell beginning to ring. His answer was, I want to hear them ring again. All the tribes of hell will be on the move if we uncover the walls of this temple. I love that attitude. I love the thought of, of me thinking, what is the way that I can, I can really fight against the devil, that I can offend him, that I can do the opposite of what he would want me to do. We're often thinking of, you know, of course, probably the best way to think of it is like, what does the Lord want me to do? Or what does Satan want me to do that I shouldn't do? But it's kind of a mental shift to think about what is the opposite of what Satan would want me to do with my time today? Okay, so next, he says, I wonder how much we offend Satan if the proclamation of our faith is limited only to the great humanitarian work of this church throughout the world, or to our beautiful buildings, or this great university, marvelous as these activities are. When we preach the gospel of social justice, no doubt the devil is not troubled. But I believe the devil is terribly offended when we boldly declare by personal testimony that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God, and that he saw the Father and the Son. When we preach that the Book of Mormon is another witness of Christ, when we declare that there has been a restoration of the fullness of the gospel in its simplicity and power in order to fulfill the great plan of happiness, we challenge the powers of darkness when we speak of the perfect life of the Savior and of His sublime work for all mankind through the atonement. This supernal gift permits us through repentance to break away from Satan's grasping tentacles. We please the devil when we argue that all roads lead to heaven. Therefore, it does not matter which road we take, we will all end up in God's presence. This man-made philosophy, for such it is, sounds good, but the scriptures do not support it. I assure each of you that the road to God's presence is not that easy. It is straight and narrow. Now, all of that can sound scary. It can sound as though it's too hard, that it 
makes us feel like we're so inadequate and we'll never make it. But Elder Faust continues. He says, we need not become paralyzed with fear of Satan's power. He can have no power over us unless we permit it. He really is a coward. And if we stand firm, he will retreat. Joseph Smith said, all beings who have bodies have power over those who do not. The devil has no power over us, only as we permit him. The moment we revolt at anything which comes from God, the devil takes power. So how do we make sure that we have power over Satan? How do we make sure that we choose that? Elder Faust quoted Elder John Longden saying, Satan selects his disciples when they are idle. Jesus selected his when they were busy at their work, either mending their nets or casting them into the sea. We need to be hard at work. Not hard in the sense that we're making ourselves miserable, but hard in the sense that we are dedicated. We are dedicating our lives to the Father, to his plan, to his church. As we are idle and lazy, we are vulnerable. But as we work hard, as we love the gospel, as we love the Savior, and as we show that through our actions, we are not vulnerable. We have great power. Elder Faust says, I testify that there are forces that will save us from the ever-increasing lying, disorder, violence, chaos, destruction, misery, and deceit that are upon the earth. So this is our solution. Those saving forces are the everlasting principles, covenants, and ordinances of the eternal gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These same principles, covenants, and ordinances are coupled with the rights and powers of the priesthood of Almighty God. We of this church are the possessors and custodians of these commanding powers that can and do roll back much of the power of Satan on the earth. We believe that we hold these mighty forces in trust for all who have died, for all who are now living, and for all the yet unborn. I pray that we will dedicate our lives to serving the Lord and not worry about offending the devil. So that's my challenge to us today. Dedicate our lives to serving the Lord and not worry about offending the devil. Really do some self-analysis. Where are the areas where you are worried about offending the devil, about offending people who have bought into the lies that the devil has presented to them? Where are you shying away from the truth as it has been revealed because of something that's in your own heart, because of a sin that you are clinging to, that you want to feel justified in? Let's end by reading the scripture that we started with. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power that you need in order to be able to do this. And as you do it, Paul says, for therein, as you are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. So my challenge to myself this week is as I go about making sure that my faith has the possibility of reaching someone else, that possibility coming from me making sure that it shows. If I hide it, it's not going to touch anyone else. It's not going to change me. So my goal is to make sure, and I sure hope, that I offend the devil as much as possible. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.